0: Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest-working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's Backbone. Welcome to episode 89. My guest is Malcolm Getz. Malcolm Getz is a graduate of the University of Florida and the Yale School of Drama. On Broadway, he appeared in Amore and received a Tony and Drama Desk nomination for Best Actor in a Musical, Macbeth at Lincoln Center Theater, Story of My Life at the Booth Theater, and The Moliere Comedies at Roundabout. Some of his off-Broadway credits include Steve, directed by Cynthia Nixon, Allegra, Boys and Girls, A New Brain, Hello Again, both at Lincoln Center, Two Gentlemen of Verona at the New York Shakespeare Festival where he received the Obie and the St. Clair Bayfield Award, Merrily We Roll Along, Drama Desk nomination and Obie Award, and at City Center he appeared in Irma La Douce, The Apple Tree opposite Kristen Chenoweth, and The Boys from Syracuse. On television, he appeared as a series regular for four seasons on Caroline and the City, People's Choice Award for Favorite New TV Comedy, Blue Bloods, The Good Wives, Suits, Law and Order, Godless on Netflix, and the new installment of Tales of the City, also on Netflix. He also appeared opposite Jessica Lange on HBO's Grey Gardens. Among the numerous films are Adam and Steve, Love and the Time of Money, 13 Conversations About One Thing, and the Sex and the City movie. He made his Carnegie Hall debut opposite Barbara Cook in Mostly Sondheim content. Which was recorded live. He can be heard on many original cast albums as well as his first solo recording, The Journey Home, which has been re released and is available on iTunes. He has taught at Juilliard, was an adjunct professor at the Tisch Graduate School of Acting, and now at the University of Florida's College of the Arts as a professor in the practice of acting. Well, hello, Malcolm Gets. How are you today?
1: I'm good, Brad Bradley. How are you?
0: I'm um, great. So this is uh, only my second quarantine recording, so I'm so glad that you were gracious enough to agree to do it. I'm
1: glad you asked me.
0: Well, of course. Where are you quarantining at?
1: I'm in Gainesville, Florida, which is the town I grew up in, and uh, for reasons I won't bore you with, I just happen to be here with my husband, so we are in Gainesville, Florida in a lovely little old Victorian house, and just like the rest of the world, taking it a moment at a time, so.
0: Well, let's just start there. So you're from Gainesville, and uh, how did you get started in this crazy business of uh,
2: show?
1: My parents are from London, and they were Blitz babies, and they saw all the great shows, and they came Came to the states and had four of us, and I was born in Chicago, and then we moved here to Florida in, when I was six, and. The first thing that happened was my mother used to play primarily five record albums all the time. Oklahoma Carousel, South pacific The King and I, and The Sound of Music. I call them the Big Five, especially Carousel. My mom has good taste. She was obsessed with that album. And so then about that time, I started playing piano around eight. And it took off for me really quickly. Like, I just had a very natural ability to read music and play the piano. And so what started to happen was I could also play by ear. So I would, in my afternoon's practice sessions, I would practice Beethoven or whatever for a while. And then I would just start to play If I Loved You or something, because my mom in those days would stay at home, and she would walk around the house and she'd sing, and we'd never talk about it, she would just sing while I play. You know, I did plays in elementary school, in middle school in the sixth and seventh grade we had this great teacher named uh, mr cross donnie cross and he had us do one-hour condensed versions of shakespeare so in the sixth and seventh grade i played macbeth romeo petruchio and bottom wow and, and it, yeah i know right plus my parents are of a generation from england where they used to quote shakespeare like my, my mother would say to own self be true so i was already not afraid of that language the real turning point i was obsessed with this girl who's still my friend hannah steamer her mother used to direct shows at the community theater and I used to follow Hannah around and the puppy dog until when I was like 13 we went to watch a rehearsal of Oklahoma at the Gainesville Little Theater which is now called the Gainesville Community Playhouse her mom was directing and the pianist was late and so Hannah's mother Jean said what are we going to do and Hannah goes Malcolm can play it. he can play anything so I got up and I just started sight reading like Farming the Cowman or something and sure enough I could just play it and then people would be like what's my part so I would sing their parts to them and at the end of the night Mrs. Thamer Hannah's mother was like you can sing you be in a play, so they put me in the next play, which was andy Get Your Gone. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. And so then I started doing theater and playing the piano, classical piano, until I was about nineteen. And by that point, I'd started taking dance class too because my third grade elementary school teacher. Still is half of the artistic directorship of a professional dance company, an international dance company in Gainesville called Dance Alive. And Judy Skinner and her sister Kimmy Tuttle, Kimmy's the ballet mom and Judy is the jazz and the modern teacher. And so I started taking Judy's classes too around 16, 17. So I was kind of doing it all, but it was all competing with this, putting me on the fast track, being not, not not the fast track, but... You know, I was studying to be a classical pianist. Like, everybody thought that that's what I was going to do, was just, you know, try to go to Juilliard or something. And what happened was it started to interfere with my, well, the acting stuff started to interfere with my piano playing. And by that point, I had a teacher who had gone to Juilliard herself, and she's a brilliant pianist and great teacher. And one day I came in and she said, you know, you're distracted. And I said, well, I'm doing these plays. She said, you're very clever. She said, you read music like lightning. She said, but you're going to get up to New York, and the kids are going to just eat you alive because you're not really living up to your potential. So that was sort of when I started to say, like, I'm going to back off this playing the piano thing. And, and by that point, I was almost old enough to go to college. Then I went to college and got to be a fan in acting. And uh, that's what started me in the whole thing. But I always tell my that it was her fault because of those five record albums.
0: <laughs> well, those are, I mean, some classic. They don't get more classic than those five. Were you teased at all? Because uh, I know uh, parts of Florida can be very conservative. Were you teased for singing and dancing? You know what? I mean, yes and no. People would call me the f-word sometimes which I won't even
1: you know honor the word by saying it. I don't know I was I was so headstrong as a kid I so just did what I wanted to do and I was so fearless which is amazing because now I have so much fear but back then I would just do things and I was kind of I kind of had blinders on and so I people made fun of me I really didn't notice it that much because I was I was just hanging out with people who are doing the same thing for the most part. My family was strangely supportive I mean my mother told me later that my father was crazy about it but they just encouraged me and my brothers and sisters you know just sort of went along with it so I used to stand in the living room and sing along with the cast albums too then when I started quote-unquote acting and I'm of that generation like I always feel like there's a certain musical that that actors identify with and I'm definitely a chorus line generation because we had that album yeah and then i saw it on broadway like 10 times i'm serious i saw it 10 times that's what i wanted to do more than anything in the world was i wanted to sing and dance on broadway and i never dreamed i would and you know it's talking to a dancer like you like i i have to say that like i would call myself an actor who moves really well i danced and i danced in shows and stuff like that i danced with the rockettes and And all of my first gigs in New York were as a dancer. But what gave me the edge as a a dancer, a mover, was that I could sing and act. That's what really... Because when I first came to New York, the first time I came was in 85, and they did their playing our song at the Equity Library Theater. Oh, wow. And I got an agent at the Hall & Yards, but I couldn't really deal with New York, so I went back to Florida for a couple of years and did some art theater. Then came back in 87 or 88, and pretty quickly got the Christmas show. And it was just like, it was like the old school auditions where there were, you know, however, a hundred some people, and then they put us in a room and started dancing us, and then they made cuts, and they made cuts, and they made cuts, and finally they got down to like, I don't know, 15 of us, and we were standing in the hallway, and they came up to me and they said, will you come in the room? And I came in and they said, did you really play Romeo? And I said, yeah. They said, and you've done Cloud Nine? And I was like, yeah, like I've done these non-musical gigs. So they said, we read for us. And I was like, read what? And so they gave me Santa Claus and Scrooge. And there <laughs> I was, you know, 22 or something, 160 pounds. And,
0: but I could do it. So I did it.
1: And they basically in the room said to me, you are hired because they needed one of the dancers who they called the New Yorkers. We used to be called the New Yorkers. There were 12, six boys and six, and six girls. And they needed one of the dancers to stand by for the character guy, Charles, who I think is still there, or he was for a long time, Charles Hall. That is sort of what changed my life because they had to build my wigs and my beard for Santa Claus and Scrooge, which took a few hours over a few days. And the woman that built all the wigs and beards it was in the shop at Juilliard. And so one day I was talking to her and I said, you know, this is a lot of fun and I'm at the time. And I said, but I, I feel like I, I knew I had more in me and I just wasn't sure how to access it. So she said, oh, you should go to Yale or Juilliard or one of those schools. And I said, well, they'll never take me. she goes, just audition. So about that time, I got cast at Paper Mill in a production of Shenandoah, which was directed by Robert Johansson and uh, choreographed by Susan Stroman. So I'll digress and I'll tell you that story. Yes, please do. I, I went to the audition for Shenandoah and I dance for a long time with everybody else and Stroman was not there. She had an assistant named Norman Kwai, I remember his name. And Norman was her assistant. He told this combination, and he decided who to call back. So a couple days later they called me and said, okay, you got to call back for Shenandoah. Well, they were just then casting Time Daily as Gypsy. And I was freelancing with an agent and the agent called me and he goes, okay, they want to see you for Tulsa. And I said, oh no, 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 they're not going to cast me in that part. And he said, why? And I said, well, I, I can tap. I said, but I, I don't think I tap that well. And I said, I just, and I... I, don't, well, I didn't want to play Tulsa. Not that they would have asked me to, but like, it's just, I didn't want to do it. I really wanted to be in Shenandoah. <laughs> so the agent was basically like, well, you got an appointment. Well, of course they conflicted. So I went to the Gypsy Call, which was first, which was at 890, the old 890. And I danced for Bonnie Walker for like a couple of hours, and then they released us. And then I went tearing up to the old Minsk Call in Times Square and came barging in, and there were easily... Sixty guys in
2: the room. Oh my god! And I
1: kept all the guys in the room at the same time. And Stroh was there, and she had taught an entirely new combination. And the cast and show remain remain nameless, who I thought was a jerk. I was up from the corner with him, and I was like, Hey, it's me. I'm coming back. And he was just he didn't he didn't do anything to help me. He was like, Well, I don't know what to tell you. And so Strohman actually stopped audition. She came over. She goes, What's going on over there? And I said, Well, I was here the other day, and I got a call back, but I had a call back for another show, and blah blah. And Stroma sort of took a breath, and she goes, We'll just do it. And so do what she goes just to the old combination. She goes Norman will do it. with you. So we in front of the whole room, we got up and we did this crazy. You know, it's a, it's like a country western musical. So we got up and we started dancing. And not only did I kill it, but Norman forgot it halfway through, so he stopped and I kept going. And it was like it was like a cheesy movie or a scene from Fame, where like I finished and the whole place erupted into applause. And the second thing that Susan Stroman ever said to me was she said, kid, you got balls. So they cast me. And during that show, I had auditioned for these schools. And during Shenandoah, I got up one day to the paper mill. They used to pick, like, maybe they still do, they used to pick us up. I'm like, the, pick us up right there, 43 9. And I got up and as I was running to go to do a matinee, I grabbed the mail. I got this letter and I got the letter from Yale. And I remember I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh, right. They're, they're probably making decisions. And I remember stopping before I opened the letter and I sat down and I said, I don't care because I was having the time of my life. It was, in Shenandoah was Barrett George Dvorsky and Dulé Hill who went on to become a television actor. It was an incredible production. It was the best group. And I, I remember before I opened the letter, I thought it's okay. I thought everything is great. I don't need something to happen. And then I opened the letter and it said I got in, which I couldn't believe. And I went to the theater, and people were just so. Then Paper Moon kept me on. It... I stayed on until I went to Yale that fall. So I did Shenandoah. Then we did Showboat. Yeah, yeah, we did Showboat, which um, they televised for PBS. And we did Superstar, which Stromman choreographed, which was this insane production on this huge crucifix and the Christ you know I love you number she she choreographed the shit out of it and we called it "Aerobics for Jesus because it was absolutely exhausting and at the end of the number we threw ourselves on the floor and there, there would be thunderous applause and then Jesus would walk amongst us and sing to us and all of us he'd look around the stage and everybody would be like just like bathed in sweat and sweating like <laughs> you know just dying so
0: well, because it's funny because when you and I have worked together and I've assisted you and you direct, we've become good friends. And you asked me, you're like, why mm-hmm. didn't you interview me for your podcast? And I said, you've never been in the ensemble. I was shocked because your career is so wonderful that you have so many ensemble credits to your name. Totally. And, and before I left New York, uh, before I came to New York, too, after I got out of college,
1: and i like, well, when I went up and did their playing a song, which I was the ensemble of, um, and I came back to Florida. I did two, some, I did a couple years of like dinner theater in South Florida, which was some of the most ridiculous and happy times of my life. And I was in Showboat playing, and I was in the ensemble except I played the guy that played the piano on that one scene. I was in Forty Second Street. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> thought about these shows in so long, and I was always taking class. Actually, Chet Walker. When I first got off of television, I used to take chess, chess class back in the day. I mean, we're talking like the late 80s. I used to take his class. And when I first got off of TV, he called me one time, and he's like, I remember you, you used to take, take my class. And again, like, he's like, I, "Chad was trying to get me to dance again. So he used to bring me up to Jacob's Pillow, and I would come to work with the, the dancers on their singing, but he was always keeping me around the world of movement. I'm like, I got to dance with Dana Moore up there, because uh, they would do the big benefits for Jacob's Pillow and, there were people that knew that I that I moved that I danced, but I'll tell you a quick story, which is I did chorus line uh, regionally before I went to New York. I played Bobby, and again, going back to like that was such a pivotal, such a huge watershed event for me. I, I still think it's one of the greatest pieces of theater ever created, and I just feel like that original production specifically was just so perfect. It was a totally unified whole. But, you know, I, I, that's what I dreamed of doing. Well, by the time I did it, I was 21 or 22. I was so unhappy doing this show because it was so dictated. And I was Bobby, and I wanted to have some spontaneity to it, but I couldn't because, you know, everything is directed, every single arm gesture and stuff like that. So I remember one night standing upstage during Cassie and Zach's fight, and you were uh, going, one, one, that whole section where you're facing all four sides. And I was standing upstage one day, and I thought like, I got to get out of here, and then years later, when they did the first revival, that one—how long ago was that? About six, seven years ago, with Charlotte Dubois yes, amongst, amongst other people. But when she when she got to the section when he goes, "This is, what, is this what you really want to do?" And she goes, "Yes, I'd be happy to. I'd be proud to." I've, I felt like I'd come full circle because I thought I felt the same as she, that character felt then. I thought, God, I'd do anything to be in the ensemble again.
0: <laughs> oh, I completely agree.
1: But, I mean, the most talented people. I don't think he'd mind me saying this, but I used to date Joey Keezy back in the day. Joey and I were together for a couple of years, back a long time ago when he was in Cats and I was doing like the roundabout and stuff like that. And so then. And Joey was just starting to, he, he, I don't think you'll mind this, Joey was just starting to be dance captain for Rob Marshall. So when I met Joey, he was in Cats, and then he went into Damn Yankees. And, like, those days of just, like, hanging out with all of his friends, Giants Alone, and George Smeros, and John Aller, and I mean, just the greatest, greatest, most amazing, amazing talents and human beings. Those Gypsy of the Year things are like, the talent is off the charts. It's so amazing, so... Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be in the ensemble of the show again, truthfully, because...
0: Oh, me too, there's nothing like it. The, just the camaraderie, it's fantastic.
1: The most talented people, I mean, I mean, when you came, you, I saw you teach a routine once to some kids, and like, you've been my friend for so long now, and it was just one of the moments I was like, oh my God, like, you dance so beautifully. It was amazing to see. And this thing I do, which is I'll see a show, and then I'll research people, like I'll, I'll B people or IBD people, usually the ensemble, and I'm like, who are they, where do they come from, where do they study, how do they, you know, who are they, I'm just so interested in that, as opposed to, I'm more interested in that than probably the
0: people out front. Oh, no, I I agree, too, and that's where I'm always watching, sometimes I have to see a show more than once, because I'm going to watch the dancing, even all the big numbers, the dancing is what I want to watch.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, you see, your career is amazing, because it spans both mediums at TV and film and Broadway and off-Broadway. But so I wanted to start talking about, like, your off-Broadway. You did a lot of great stuff at Lincoln Center, being a favorite. What was your experience being in, like, the Merrily We Roll Along, which you won uh, an Obie Award for, and then New Brain and Hello Again? These are darling off-Broadway shows that you got to be part of creating. Well, I'm glad you brought up
1: that up, and it makes me think of one person, who, Graciela Danielle, And Graciela had done, she was the first person to put March of the Falsettos and Land together. She did the inaugural, if that's the right word, production, where they put them together at Hartford stage in like 1991 or 1992. And I was in school at Yale, New Haven, which was like 45 minutes away. And so David Chambers, who was one of our professors, knew Graciela. And so he got her to come over on her Mondays off for six weeks to work with my class. And bear in mind that this was an acting, it was not a musical theater track, it was classical acting. And so she came over and she worked with us and one day she showed up and um, she'd given an assignment, which, you know, Graciela, she's not stern. She And so she made it, she'd given an assignment. She came in the following Monday and nobody done it. And she didn't flip, flip out or get angry or anything. She's just like, well, we've got time. Does anybody want to do anything? And I would made up this movement piece to a something from Cinema Paradiso from the soundtrack. And I it was this old soundtrack. man with a tremor and then he steps outside of the skin. And I just made up a dance piece to it on my own. So I got up and I said, well, I'll do this. And I showed her and she said, she was your choreographer. And I said, and I remember, I said, don't say that. And she said, why? And I said, because I play the piano and I sing an act. And I said, I, I feel like I'm going to be the jack of all trades, master of none. Well, then I graduated like, three months later and I got a show at the Vineyard. And then I did a show at Hartford State with Mark Lemos. So I'm six months out of grad school and my agents called me and said, you've got an audition at Lincoln Center for this musical by Michael John Accusa directed by Graciela Danielle, and I was like, Graciela. So I came into New York on my day off, and I did this thing which I used to do where I put together West Side Story and Romeo and uh, from Shakespeare. And I did it, and it was six minutes long. I mean, it was kind of ballsy of me. And I finished it, and Ira Weitzman and Michael John and Graciela were just sitting there staring at me, and nobody said anything. And then I said to Graciela, I said, we've met before. And she goes, were you in one of my shows? <laughs> and I said, no. I said, I went to Yale, and you taught it. She goes, yes, I remember you. She goes, you were the best one. And she goes, you dance, and I so said, "Well, yeah." So she cast me, and that cast—that was hello again. That was John Cameron Mitchell, Michelle Park, Donna Murphy, Judy Blazer, Michael Park, John Dossett. It was just the most ridiculous cast, and uh, Carolee Carmelo, and um, and I, John Cameron, and I had the scenes in a disc- discotheque. And the first couple weeks of rehearsals, we would start it, and it was all. Like, wretched Teeth, it was all, all the dialogue was mostly song too. And I would dance, and Graciela would be like, no, 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 don't, don't dance so much. And she'd be like, don't dance so much. And then she'd be like, don't walk in time with the music. And one day she came up to me and she said, because she assisted Fossy on the original Chicago, and then she assisted Michael Bennett on Folly. You know, she didn't just work with those guys. Like, she worked with them. Yes. So she would pass on to me the things that they would say to her. And she said that Fossy said that, like, there was some real, incredibly delicate fine line between musicals and non-musicals, and that even though the audiences aren't aware of it, that once the person is talking on stage and they start to sing, that there's something really unnatural about it. So you have to kind of ease into it. So she said he had a rule that you couldn't start to dance for at least like the first eight or 16 bars. So you had to kind of set up the sort of like what the number was about before you start moving. And then even then, when you start moving, it has to be minimal. And then for walking in time with the music thing, she's like, she said, you know, those guys taught me that it's the weirdest combination of like, quote unquote, realistic behavior and For her taste, my walking in time with the music, she's like, no, no, then it just has to be natural. And then when you dance, you're going to dance. So it was, you know, so she, she had a big influence on me as a director as well. And so I did. Hello, again with her. Merely was a fabulous experience. I did dance at all in that. New Brain came later, and and again, that was I was at that point I was doing Carolina in the City in Los Angeles on NBC, and it was my first hiatus. I came back and they called me. Said Lincoln Center was going to do this workshop with James Lapine and Bill Finn, and I'd done a brief workshop with those two guys before of something called Muscle, which never was produced. And so we did that first workshop of New Brain with Graciela, and I mean I can't say enough about her. I just. I've had the happiest experiences of my life. I've done a lot of readings with her. We did a Lucky Stiff. We did a uh, mufti of that at the York Theater, and it was really, really good. Like, even we made a recording of it. It was a great cast, Mary Testa. And, and yeah, so Graziella, I'd sort of followed her around. And I did, I, I, you know, the thing about my journey has been that I've been in these sort of critical, critically lauded shows that never were big commercial hits, because they were, I've never really done a Phantom of the Opera. I've never really done a Hamilton. I've done these sort of, dark, esoteric, artsy, off-Broadway shows. And then the two Broadway musicals that I worked on were also, you know, not conventional. more by Michelle Legrand and Jeremy Sams, which James LaPine directed. And then The Story of My Life by Neil Bartram and, and Brian Hill, directed by Richard Maltby, who I love. And both those shows were very intimate and offbeat and different. And they were both heartbreakers because I believed in them both so mightily and, and neither one of them lasted because the critics just weren't going for them so, so someday I would love to do a bafo hit like Hairspray
2: or something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to have to deal with the, the challenge of doing it a week for more than you know three or four months. I say as I get older, but
0: yeah, I saw a story of us, and i I loved it. I mean, how do you deal with that type of heartbreak cuz i mean it was both you and will chase your heart and soul were up on that stage every second of it and then for it to be considered a flop
1: yeah will had been attached to it for a while before i came into it and then when i first came into it we did it at the good speed at their norma terrace that is the small theater yes so we went to good speed and we did it for four or five weeks out there people were really moved by it. I was going to say blown away, but that's not the right word. People were terribly moved by it. And I, I was as connected to that part as anything I've ever done. I was really, like in that way that you just don't overthink. Like there was some part of me that was, I was so connected to it and I didn't have to work at it. And I loved Will. I love Will. And I love Neon Bryan, And I love Richard Maltby. And I felt like in the same way that I was speaking about A course Line, I felt like Richard Maltby, who was a total man of the theater. Like Richard is a great lyricist and he's a great director and he's a great conceiver and he's great... He's great at putting groups of people together, and he's just like a fabulous... He's like uh, how, I'm asking, how I imagine Oscar Hammerstein was. like just like a total person of the theater. We took some time off after Connecticut, and then we did a workshop in New York. And so we had like a year to live with it, and it was so perfect because we would perform it, and then we'd take a month off, and then we'd perform it. And I felt like it just kept dropping in for both of us even more and more and more. And they wrote one new song, which was a great addition. And, and I remember thinking, like, I thought, I'm very... Cynical and I'm very self-protective, but I remember thinking right before we opened, I thought we're going to be okay. I thought New York needs a little two-character musical like this at the Blue Theater. And I said it'll it'll be good to balance out the season. And I never read them, but you know the show just got completely shut out. That was a tough one. That was really tough because I didn't I didn't think it was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to happen with a more either. But I was um, so connected to the story of my life, and and it's funny because I just watched a documentary of Leonard Soloway, who was a company manager, producer, uh, general manager. Oh, he's just the most divine human being. He's uh, been around for a long time. And he worked on Story of My Life. And in the documentary, he's standing Joe Allen and looks at the poster and he, says, he goes, you know why that show didn't work? He said, it's because it was about two best friends and one of the friends is in love with the other one. And he said, we didn't tell the audience that. And I thought, it wasn't about that. And I, it made people, the show was so, in my opinion, it was so rich and it was so not, It was so complex that to to say that Alvin, my character, was in love with Will's character, that makes it, that robs it of its investment, because I don't think Alvin ever had sex with anything. I think he just, I think he loved his best friend, but almost like a child. Like, I don't think there was anything sexual about it. And so, you know, to get musicals that have that sort of complexity and subtlety, it's hard to get them to fly in New York. You know, that's that's why I've done so many off Broadway shows, or done so many musicals at the institutions like the Roundabout and the Lincoln Center is because, you know, every so often a light on the piazza will run or, you know, every so often a a more upbeat show will run. But for the most part, Mr. Sondheim, of course, is the one exception. But I've done so many workshops with so many with Ricky Ian Gordon and people like that who are just genius talents, but they're just Broadway is, and it's, and I feel like Broadway before this pandemic is really Broadway now. Like, I mean, Hamilton is, is groundbreaking, but so much of the shows are, they're just, you know, they're big zillion dollar productions with, everything sort of spelled out, and, and artfully so. I mean, people do big shows beautifully. And I, I wish there was room for the smaller, more, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Not untraditional shows, more more abstract shows, because so many of my friends are writers who are writing those things, and it's so hard for them to get produced in New York. I mean, even Jason Robert Brown, even Jason's shows haven't really been commercial successes. No, none of so. them
0: now. With the more... Even though it wasn't a big hit, you did get your first Tony nomination.
1: Yes, I did, and so did Melissa, and so did the show, I think. Yeah, we... That one, at least, we ran a... We, I think we ended up running two weeks after the opening night, but there was... That one had a following, like, right off the bat. During previews, it gathered up The Word on the Street was really good. So a lot of people saw that show, and... Those last two weeks, I guess, especially once they announced we were closing, a lot of the Tony nominators came. And I was doing, I was down in Florida. The Sundance program used to workshop shows at the, this place called White Oak, which is north of where I'm right now. And I was down there workshopping. I did a lot of projects with them. I want to say it was, oh, it was with, it was with Tina Landau and Ricky Ian Gordon. It was this beautiful piece with Diane fretton and Judy Blazer and Jessica Malasky and Michael Rupert. And we were literally on a compound with no, This is before cell phones, I think. Was it? God, yeah, maybe. We were just totally out of touch with the world. And I had gotten a Drama Desk nomination for more. And when that happened, I thought, okay, if they nominate me for the Drama Desk, which has a wider selection to choose from, because it's Broadway and Off-Broadway. And people were like, well, you might get nominated for the Tony. And I was like, yeah, right. So I, I literally did not know when the nominations were coming out. And I was just like living in this compound. And I came into rehearsal that morning, and Tina Landau, who I think is a genius, she started rehearsal. And she said, "Oh, we have to, we have to talk about something." First, she goes, "Matt, you got a way for the Tony Award," and I was like, "Really?" And then we just went into rehearsal. But I missed all the brouhaha in New York, like when they do publicity and stuff like that. I missed it, and so I came back into town the day before they have a party for the nominee. And I had been so creatively focused on Family Project by. Ricky's show. I was aware of the Tonys, obviously, but I didn't really have a chance to focus on them. So I come back to New York. They had this luncheon for us at the Rainbows and Stars. And I sat with Harvey, who I won, thank God, because he was so brilliant in Hairspray. And I was sitting there with Harvey and he was like making me laugh. And, and um, they showed this movie about the Tony Awards. And and then they got up at the end and they said, okay, you know, tonight to is for all of you have been nominated. And, you know, a week from now, somebody's going to win it, but we want you to all feel like winners. And so I finished the thing and I got in a cab and I took the cab down to Union Square where I live and I got out of the cab and I called my mom. And that was when it all caught up with me because I just remember bursting into tears. My mom and I, who were, were very connected, we both burst into tears. And I said to her, I said, I'm from Gainesville, Florida. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe it. It was, it was an imagine. You know, so much of my gratitude is about cast albums. Because New Brain was not a hit. I did not read those reviews, but I know that, like, the show was basically dismissed. And that show is produced all the time. And it's because that CD, you know, those CDs are, I'm on so many CDs of shows that were not necessarily commercial hits. But because of them, because, you know, because of Kurt Deutsch and uh, Tommy Krasker, because of those great guys who who still put money into those albums, which never make any money. Not only do you have a, a document of those shows, but that's the reason they get produced elsewhere. I mean, New Brain, I've been asked to direct it three times, and I can't tell you how many times people come over to me, and I, it's so fun now because I think people think it was a big hit back in the day, but it wasn't. So thank God for CDs, I, I call them albums. Oh, cassette that's tapes, so there, was, great. there was a cassette tape of Hello Again and Merrily, so. I'm
0: that old. No, I have cassette tapes, too. At least you didn't... I, I don't have any a track <laughs> 78. Number 78 records? Oh, gosh, yes. Somehow, in the middle of this great theater career, you ended up in Los Angeles and on the television show Caroline in the City. How did you go from doing off-broadway shows and shows at the Equity Library Theater to co-starring in a tv series
1: well when i came out of school when i came out of yale i did the rounds and i met all the intelligent and film casting directors not for a minute that i didn't want to do it but i just didn't think people would hire me to do it i just i really just thought it was just like a theater person and um i got pilot i think the first thing i did was a pilot for cbs with nicolette sheridan it was a half hour one single camera comedy called incredible that was never it was not picked up but the week we were filming that in l.a the producer came over and said we're going to fly you to miami and you're going to do the show called south beach but so then I did a guest spot on this show. It was a one-hour Dick Wolf, Miami Vice-type type show um, with Yancey Butler from Witchblade. And I so I did a guest appearance on that. And then I did Law & Order, all of which was happening around theater stuff. And I started to figure out really quickly, too. I thought, like, oh, it's hard enough to get a pilot, and then if you get a pilot, the chances that it gets picked up are nil because they make so many of them. I was already getting, not cynical, but I was like, if I can get these gigs for a week and make this money, then I can go back and do more theater. And then I was doing this play at the Roundabout. It was Moliere, directed by Michael Langham with Brian Bedford, who's just the greatest actor ever. And I auditioned for Carolina City, and I was up for a lot of very sort of boring guy roles who was like, you know, Jim, the next door neighbor, and Dave, the guy from the record store. And then suddenly I get this audition for this weird guy who's miserable and depressed and very cynical and self-loathing. And I, I was like, oh, I like this part. And so I, I auditioned. And Marco Panette, who's one of the creators of Caroline, had seen Merrily. So when I came into the room, he said, I saw you in Merrily roll along Now, when I teach now, I always, you know, we talk so much about just like being yourself and walking in the room and giving them the sense of who you are. Well, when I auditioned for Caroline, I knew I couldn't walk in and be my garrulous self I, because he was so ornery. So it's one of the few times I, I, so I wore black clothes and I wore glasses, which I didn't really wear. When Marcus said, like I say, Marilyn, you were really good, I was like, thanks. I just like, sort of acted to be this different type of person. So four or five weeks went by, and I was having a lot of auditions. And I kept saying to my agent, like, what happened if that show Carolina City? And I remember one of my agents at one point, she goes, who cares? She goes, you're gonna get something else. And then after five weeks, I don't know where she calls me. She goes, okay, they want to test you for that. And there were two shows they wanted to test me. And I said, Carolina City, because I, for some reason, I think I had to pick, but... So, my test, w- w- the Mole Europe show at the Roundabout closed that Sunday evening, and then starting Tuesday, I was doing a workshop of Triumph of Love, which was Jeffrey Stock, and musical that came and went on probably with Betty Buckley. So, the workshop was being directed by Michael Mayer, who is completely glorious, and Judy Kuhn was the princess, and I was the prince, and Kevin Chamberlain, and all these good people, Ben Braxton, and, and so... So they flew me to Los Angeles Sunday night, and then Monday I woke up and I met with Jim Burroughs one-on-one, and then they took me and tested me with Leah before the NBC brass. And they deposited me at the airport at like 3 o'clock. And my flight wasn't till the red ice. I remember sitting in LAX all by myself drinking. Because I used to drink back like then. I don't drink anymore. And I just remember getting quietly drunk at LAX. And then the next morning, I got up. And, or I flew straight into the middle of the night and went to rehearsal for Trying for Love. And just like the story about the Yale letter, that morning, I was in rehearsals. And I thought, like, I don't care if I get that TV show. Because I thought, this is fabulous. This is so good right now. And then, by the end of the day, my manager called and she said, I got it. I went out to film the pilot, and nobody knew me. Everybody else in the pilot, like Leo was a star, obviously, but everybody had, Eric had just been on Frasier, and they all had TV credits, and everybody was like, who's this guy from New York? And it was fantastic. I mean, Jim Burroughs is the... You know, the most in-demand, half-hour multi-camera director, of probably of all time. Cheers, friends, you name it, Frasier, everything. And his father was Abe Burroughs, who directed and co-authored Guys and Dolls and How to Succeed. Oh, wow. But Jimmy also went to, yeah, Jimmy went to Yale Drama too. And what I found out later about Jimmy that I didn't know at the time is that he doesn't like to do, he won't do sitcoms with comedians. He'll only do sitcoms with actors. And then because he's so powerful, he gets he gets to do something that nobody else gets to do, which was we rehearsed for a weekend or nine days, and then we ran it. We did a performance for an audience, which we didn't film, which you never get to do because it's so expensive. But they brought in an audience and we did it like a play so that writers could hear what they responded to. Then we rehearsed for another three or four days and then we shot it again with the, the real audience. I knew that the day we did it the the run through in front of the regular audience, I was like, Oh my god, like people went ballistic for it. And I was it was right before I quit drinking and I just remember I was staying in a hotel in the valley and everybody else lived in LA and they all had lives and kids and families and I was just by myself and I would just go back to the, the sportsman's lodge. <laughs> my friend Julie White. You know you know who Julie White is? Oh yes, definitely. Julie is just the greatest actress and an old friend I love her. And so she had said to me, she said, haven't we yet? the Sportsman's Lodge? Stay at the Sportsman's Lodge now. So I, I stayed there and it's this really fantastic like hotel out of a different time, like 1950, 19, yeah, 1952. And it's right on Ventura Boulevard near the CBS Radford, which is where we filmed. It was total kitsch, but I would go there and just be by myself and just be like, what is happening? So we shot the pilot on this one night a Friday night or something and we went really late we went to like one or two in the morning and then my friend Mitchell Anderson who was in Party 5 Mitchell doesn't act anymore but he was a wonderful guy dear friend and he was there that night and he came running over to me and he goes this is gonna go he's like this is gonna happen and then I remember Warren Littlefield who was the head of NBC who I loved came over and he's like who are you like you come from New York right and then I went out by myself and got completely obliterated woke up the next day in my hotel room at the Sportsman's Lodge in the middle of my bed at like 11:30 AM. Completely, brutally hungover, and the television set was on. It it was the Oklahoma bombing. It was when the guy blew up the government building. Yes.
2: Yeah. Oh, and so
1: I have this memory of like waking up the, the morning after and just being like, you know, oh my God. And so I came back to New York, and I'm sure I was doing something. I can't remember what. And then two months later, Leah Thompson called me. And she's like, we got picked up. And I was like, really? She goes, Yeah. She goes, Malcolm, they're putting us between friends and ER. And I. Had never seen Friends, and I'd never seen ER because I was always on stage. (laughs) She said they. She said they gave us the number one spot they could give us. She said we're going to be a must see TV on Thursday nights. And I'm. I'm so glad that I didn't know anything because if I'd had a clue, I would have flipped out even more. But I just. I I always say to my students, I say just stay inside the work because if you're like me. every step along the way has been a surprise for me a a nice surprise but like I was not the kind of person I did not go to New York thinking that I was going to set the world on fire I mean I I had a lot of nerve I had a lot of chutzpah but like I always had a lot of self-doubt too and so everything that's happened for me has been like wow I can't believe this is happening and I remember the first year of Caroline I would just go to work and you know we'd just do our work we'd be in this soundstage and we'd put on our little play and it was 23 minutes long and he would come and look at it and give us notes, and then we'd go home, and I'd go to the gym or I'd do whatever. But then all the time at, like, 3 in the morning, I'd get up to go to the bathroom, and somehow in that half-awake state, I would be like, oh my God, I'm in fucking
2: television. Yes.
1: <laughs> and there would be like a fly buzzing around my head, and I'd be like, shoot, fly, shoot, 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 shoot. Like I could, and I never watched television. I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the size of it because on some level, and I still was not prepared. I was not prepared, not that anybody is. Jim Burroughs said to me, he said, you better get ready, get And he was right, like I just was not prepared for the power of, especially back then when you didn't have a thousand cable networks. You just, it was CBS, ABC, NBC and HBO and maybe Showtime. But there was not so much to watch back then. So if you were on NBC and you were on NBC between Friends and ER, people watched you. Fortunately, I got sober. I got sober right before the end of the first season. And I remember the wrap party from our first season we had a great editor named Pete Chacos, who's still around. He's a great guy, and he every year he would make these amazing real gag reels. I mean, He'd have entire sections. Like there'd be a section of cursing where they'd have all these outtakes of us saying four-letter words, and then there'd be an outtake of people. Laughing and breaking up and stuff. And one of the sections was all the guest stars we'd had on the show that year. And it was Elizabeth Ashley played my mother, and Jeff Burst played my father, and Gene Stapleton did the show. And uh, I mean, it was like that. I I did sober for about four weeks at that party, and they were showing that reel and I I burst into tears, and I because I just got it. I was like, I'm the luckiest mother in the world. Like I just I couldn't believe how good it it was. Did you see Elaine Stritch's show?
0: I did. I at Liberty. Yes
1: it was tremendous and she at the very end of the show she quotes Beckett as saying absent always and the way she closed her show was she said well almost always she said I'm catching up and that's how I feel I've, even now I still feel like I'm catching up in certain ways but I'm, I'm so grateful that I got to do that show because then we did three more years and for those three years I was I was present I mean I still had a lot of anxiety and a lot of noisy shit going on in my head. But I also had moments when I really would be able to look around me and be like, Bob, wow, this is so great. I'm so lucky, you know. That's how to feel about my life, truthfully. I mean, I just feel like, God, I've been so lucky. I mean, and just, and now, uh, you know, I've been down here teaching for a few years at my alma mater, the University of Florida. And I look at the kids and they'll ask questions and I'll say to them, I'm like, guys, I'm one of you. I'm like, I'm one of you guys. I grew up in a lower middle class, suburban neighborhood with two extremely well-meaning, loving Fabulous people, but did not earn a lot of money and had nothing to contribute to my career financially, nothing. Like I paid for Yale completely out of student loans and work studies. And I will even go so far as to say, with, with love and respect to them both, they didn't say, go to New York and set the world on fire. I was like, I'm going to New York. And they're like, do you really need to? like? Are you, you know what I mean? They, they, they were cautious. They were afraid for me. So people, if anything, people sort of tried to, when I got it to Yale, I called my mom and I said, I got into to Yale. She's like, but you already have a degree. I was like, but mom, this, this program is like, and she's like, who's going to pay for it? And they just were afraid, you know? So I didn't have parents who were like, you're amazing. You can do anything. They, they were sort of like, you know, don't aim too high. You know, so you won't be disappointed. And so I say to the kids here, I'm like, look, I just put my bicycle in a rental car. And I drove to New York City and I got a sublet through a friend who was on tour in Gypsy. And I lived in a two-bedroom flat in Hell's Kitchen where we did the dishes in the tub because there was no sink. Like, it's all something cliche, but I did it and I just did it. And I drive the students crazy because they're like, how did you get an agent? And I'm like, I tried to do good work. How did you get on television? I tried to do good work. Like, they always want to know the formula or how to network or how to whatever, and I'm like, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm like, because all I ever knew to do was to try to do the best job I could in the performance. And that's what got me work. That's exactly what happened. I did the Vineyard Show, which was directed by Lonnie Price. Then I worked with Mark Lemos. Mark told me later that he knew Graciela because she was the director for Hartford. So when I auditioned for Graciela, I mentioned it to him. He called her. And then Graciela called somebody else and said called somebody else. And so that's my career happened because... People liked working with me and they liked my work, not because I had the biggest agent or because I was good at schmoozing at parties. And in fact, I'm terrible at that stuff. I'm terrible at it. So that's all I know to say to aspiring people is just like, just stay in class. Because I've always, always stayed with the singing teacher, always. Even now I still I do lessons. And for the most part, I was always in dance class too. I took... In LA, Ron Dennis, who was the original Richie in Chorus Line, I mean, the very first Richie, the one on the album, Ron, he is the most amazing, amazing, amazing person alive. And he teaches a class, or he taught a class at a Hollywood Dance Center called Over 40. <laughs> and I used to take Ron's class, and it was like Donna McKechnie, and, and it was like people from the old days. This woman, Catherine Ann Wright, who I'd seen play Sheila in Chorus Line, and she was in Pippin, and I was probably 45, like 50 at the time. And Ron. Those guys were well, you know, had a few years on me, and there was no, there wasn't a lot of leaping, <laughs> there wasn't a lot of like going to the floor. There's a lot of turning and a lot of lyrical stuff, but it was fantastic. And, I, and as crazy as it sounds, like right now I want to dance. I really want to dance again. Like, I, like that has been beating at my chest again. That I want to. I want to move around, so I'm trying to figure out if I can ask somebody on the dance faculty here, because I'm doing another year, if somebody will help me develop sort of like the movement piece that I did for Graciela, which is somewhere between like, sort of like Bill Irwin work and, and dance. So I want to ask one of the dance faculty to see if they'll work with me, because I want to move, I really want to dance. It's the most freeing thing in the world to dance, I find. It's maybe even more so than singing for me. It's the most uh, liberating and it's the surest thing to make me cry too
0: oh. one of the things that I love about you the most is your authenticity and uh, you have this interesting sense of self and I've gotten to know you mm-hmm. very well and from an outsider's point of view you've been on television all these cast albums a Tony nomination you should be the most confident person in the world and yet I'm Come to find out that you are riddled with self doubt and riddled with anxiety <laughs> and fear. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. it's just so interesting that someone with your success has to deal with that. Because I think, from my point of view or anyone's point of view, we would think that you wouldn't have any type of anxiety, and yet that's definitely not the case. Well,
1: anxiety is is like you know comes with the DNA, and there is a decided streak of it in my family. Like I would say that almost every male in my family suffered from anxiety and or depression. So that's just part of it is just chemical wiring. You know, I do think that creative people tend to be a little bit more plugged in, which can be a great a great thing. And it could also be a liability. And now that I work with younger sensitive people, I, I see that all over the place. But I bring it up with them now because I, I basically say to them that when I was 37, it all caught up with me, that the hyper, hyper perfectionist part of me, that part of me that that I had never really been conscious of. I just did it anyway. It started to catch up with me, and I started to realize, I started to hear the thoughts in my head, which were like, you suck, you suck, you suck. And I don't think she'd mind me sharing this because she said it in a classroom context, but Betty Buckley told me that she was struggling with in cats, and she said there were nights when the voices inside of her head were louder than the sound coming out of her when she saying, touch me, it's so easy to leave me, which was a big, amazing sound. She came into my life, uh, she, I studied with her. She's a brilliant, brilliant. Brilliant artist, and that's exactly what had happened to me. Was I was like a new brain, and I was like singing high G's and wailing, but the voice inside my head was was louder. You know, it was just like you're not good tonight. You're not as good. You're not as good. So when I work with the young people now, I say, look, you know, you're 22, you're 20, and I said, I'm going to tell you something I wish somebody had told me when I was 20, which is for every negative thought that you have about yourself, like that could have been better tonight. Then you have to come up with something that you did well, like like taking taking a, a tally, like a check sheet, oh, uh, yes, a checklist. Yes. And, and I, I say to people like, you know, it's a great thing to aspire to do good work, even do great work. And to push oneself, but there's a line that one can cross over where you go from like I could, I could, I work a little harder because I could be better. There's a fine line between that and suddenly like I suck, like that was not good enough. I suck, and I wish somebody had sort of brought that to my attention when I was younger, because it didn't. It caught up with me when I, as I said, when I was like 36, and it was like a snowball. That it was like a, a mountain. It was like a snowball that had become a mountain, and it was really. And you know, no coincidence. It was after I quit drinking, and um, it all sort of caught up with me. As far as like you know, what you call authenticity, I've always been unable to not be myself, which has sometimes gotten me in trouble. But like, I don't know. I just feel like we all got to be real with each other. You know, so much of my acting now is, is informed by teaching, and so I see the students, and they're trying to be perfect. And so I say to them, you know, like that Leonard Cohen song where he said, uh, "That's how the light gets in, babies, through the cracks." Oh, yes. My students would have laughed at me recently because they've reassembled the Merrily, three of, three of the Merrily We Roll Along cast, uh, the 1995 revival, which I was in, the 2019 fiasco theater revival, and the original Broadway production, and apparently 43 of us have, are, are singing on thing, and so I to sell tape me singing a song from Merrily We Roll Along. And I did all these takes when I was watching the playback, and I thought, I would tell my students, like, stop, that's good, it's, it's got a lot of richness in it. But I was like, I want to sing it better. <laughs> and I kept doing take after take after take. And my husband thought it came in, and he's like, you have to stop right now. Like, he couldn't hear me sing, it's a hard time, breathing in. He couldn't hear me sing it one more time because I was making myself crazy. And I felt like I completely, like, did exactly what I encouraged my students not to do, which is try to get, like, the perfect take, which is, you know, questionable anyway. That's a question of opinion. It's just it's been a really long journey for me to sort of settle into my own skin. It's been hard won, and I've done a lot of work around it. I definitely have moments when I. But sort of going back to your initial question, I was talking with with a faculty member today about a student that we that we both work with, and I'm going to work with again in the uh, fall. And the student, I need to have a conversation with her and say. Listen, your perfectionism, your desire to be great is a good thing, but it really gets in the way. Somebody just needs to tell her because every rehearsal was about trying to get her back to some people. They just really get in their own way and it ceases to be kind of productive. And so it's just about talking to these people and saying, look, how can you still have these standards for yourself? but, But stop shooting yourself in the foot because some really talented people can't do it because they just they they can't get emotionally centered that's a problem for really sensitive talented people I mean there's that's why so many people drink or use drugs or do other things yeah I had a friend once who said that like creative people are are like lightning rods and it's true you know it's like it's it's a it's a wonderful thing but it can be a real burden so I just try to get them at an earlier age because you know you can spot them a mile away you just see the student sort of like you know they finish singing, and you say, how do you feel? And they're like, oh, I suck, I'm terrible. And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Put down the the, the whipping. Yeah, stop. Just stop. Be gentle on yourself.
0: What's well, so interesting, because so you are so hard on yourself. You really are.
1: Something that shifted for me in the last 10 years was Olympia Dukakis, a great actress and director and everything, human being. She said that, I'm a member of this company called the Actors Center. She spoke at one of the events. She said, I think the reason is that a lot of us become actors changes if we stay with it. She said that whole need for attention and approval, she said that gets really old really fast. And she said that we have to d- discover new ways to continue to do our work. And then what really killed me was she said, perhaps if we can view our work as the way we choose to evolve as human beings. And perhaps we can let go of certain bitterness and grow. And that has definitely happened for me over the last 15 years, where I'm like, what am I doing this for? Like, am I still doing this to get my father's approval, which I'm never
2: going to get. Right.
1: And then there was a crisis where I was like, what am I doing? And I remember doing this play off-Broadway, a two-character play that I never read the reviews, but apparently the New York Times just killed me, slaughtered me, and, and I've never read it. And halfway through the run, it was a very lonely experience during that show, because there were only two of us. And one night I came off stage and the actress I was playing opposite, Helen Stenborg, who was just, just the most glorious woman. She did the play and then she passed away. She was 91 or something. So she came to my dressing room one night. And she goes, Cherry is here. And I was like, Cherry Jones? And she goes, yeah, she wants to speak to you. And I went over and I was just so embarrassed because I felt like I sucked so bad. And Cherry didn't say like, great performance, Malcolm. She looked at me and she goes, that was an interesting performance, Malcolm. And so they all, you know, and she goes, she goes, something's changing in you. just stay with it. And I held on to that. It was such a gift that she said that to me because I was, I was like in the hallway, as they say. I was like, I was evolving as a person and as a, and then I started to do the work more for the writer, the audience, the cast, and even to honor whatever ability I was given. I'm hesitant to use the word talent or gift, but like to, because I do feel like I was meant to do this. And I feel like if you don't use your talents, you're denying something that you were born with, which can be really great thing to contribute to the planet. And so that's why nowadays, when I start to get really hard on myself, I just finally say, like, just get out of your way, Malcolm. Just like, it's not about you, Malcolm. It's not about you, Malcolm. I mean, it feels like it is sometimes, but it's not. Look out rather than look in. Focus on my scene partner. Focus on the audience. Focus on the newest chapter of my life is that now I meditate like a banshee, like all the time. That ranges from more formal meditation to just practicing being present, like all the time. I feel like I'm talking so much, but there's there's a Buddhist monk named a writer named Thich Nhat Han, and he writes his books are so beautiful because they're like they're like children's books. He says the most wise things in very simple ways. And he said your mind is like a kite. And he said if you have the moment of realization when you realize the kite is spinning off and fears about tomorrow and regret about yesterday or whatever, he said the minute you realize that the kite is spinning out, you take a breath and you bring the kite home to yourself. That literally will happen to me. 30 times a day, I'll be standing somewhere and somebody will be talking to me and I won't be listening to a word they say and then I'll realize I'm thinking like, I'm, I'm going to die, I'm going to get COVID, I'm going to get run over by a car. And I just take a breath and I come back the present. There are times I feel like, is this accomplishing anything? But then there are times I'm like, oh, well, I'm really present now. Like I'm really so much more present than I used to be for my life. And I make my students do it. Like I'm, I make them sit and breathe all of their breath because I say to them, I'm like, especially because I, one of the classes I teach is acting on camera. I'm like, if you're not there, forget it. Like that lens is that, that it's right up your nostrils. Like if, if you're away thinking of something else, it's going to be, you might as well just write it at the bottom of the screen because the audience will be like, they're not there. Whereas on the other side of the corner, people who are really present, I'm drawn to them. It's like, oh, that person's got a sense of something, some power.
0: How did you transition from performing and doing a bunch of TV spots? I've, I've seen you in Tales of the City and Elementary, but now you went home to teach at your alma mater. And I mean, you also taught at Juilliard and other schools. You just seem to also have a knack and a joy for teaching. Was that new?
1: Well, it started because of our your friends with her too, Deb Lapidus, who's taught at Juilliard Drama Division and NYU Graduate Acting for concurrently both programs for 30 years, and she's a master teacher, which is the understatement of all time. She's one of the greatest teachers I've ever encountered. She has become one of my best friends. She's the funniest, smartest person in the world. I love her so much and she, and I teach because of her. And it started very casually where like, I had worked with a bunch of NYU graduates in Shakespeare in the park and I did a workshop with her, and we got to be friends. And then I started subbing as an accompanist for her classes. And this was in 95, 96, like when things were going well for me as an actor. But everything I was doing had a special contract. They were all off-Broadway contracts. I wasn't making any money, and I had a lot of student debt. So I would play for classes at NYU. And then she'd be like, what do you think, Malcolm? And I'd throw in my two cents. And then I went off to California for five years. And when I came back, we just started up again. And then she'd be like, will you teach my class for me on Wednesday? And so then I started subbing for her. Then she'd be like, I'm going to take a semester off where you cover for me for this semester and then I would teach it. So it started really naturally under the inspiration and tutelage of Deb. I mean, I just I just did what she did because she does it so well and she's taught so many amazing people. So that was going on and then and then I co-staged these shows with her at Juilliard and at NYU, which is how Brad Bradley comes into the story because we were doing a show at Juilliard and there was a boy in the acting program who had already played Billy Elliot in London so he could really dance. And so we decided to him Mike and do that and I called Lisa. And I said, who could help with, because again, like, I, I I had thoughts for the overall staging, but I, I couldn't tap like that. And she said, you should call Brad Bradley. And you walked in to that rehearsal at Julio that night, and like, and because the boy already was suspect of me, because I think he realized he was like, do you, do you know how to tap? And I was like, I'm going to get somebody. <laughs> so <laughs> the first rehearsal you came into, not only were you just like effortless, you just like fell into it, but like, I could tell immediately that he was like, he that down. So, God bless Lisa for bringing you into my life. I love it. And I love so, assisting
0: uh, you and watching you because you're also a, a brilliant director. You know how to talk to actors, which I think is so key. I
1: think I'm better at conceptual stuff. I don't love coming up with steps. I don't love the sort of minutiae of that. Other people do it so much better than me, but I think I'm good at, like, storytelling. And I'm good at, like, the bigger picture stuff. I'm, I'm very conscious of if people have a narrative in their choreography and when it's showing off, when it's telling a story. I mean, to me, certainly Stephen Sondheim has had a greater impact on my life than probably any other artist. But for my money, the person who was the genius of all time was Jerome Robbins. I mean, that man's career was just staggering. And to this day, if I see the bottle dance, or if I see Cool, I start crying. Liza Gennaro is my friend, and her father was Peter. And it was only like 10 years ago that people were like, oh, Peter Gennaro choreographed the dance at the gym." Like, he choreographed America. Like, Robbins didn't do it. And then Robbins I think somehow let it be known that like he didn't want anybody to know that he didn't do that some of the most powerful stuff he didn't do the steps somebody else did them But he knew how to step back and say like, I'd lose the story there. And he knew how to go to Bach and Hart and say, what's the opening number about until they finally said tradition. And he's like, that's what it's about. I mean, he just had the most insane conceptual imagination. And I'm not remotely comparing myself to him, but that's more of where I come from is I feel like I'm a great show doctor. I feel like when I have friends directing things and they say, come in and watch a rehearsal, I'm really good at like, what's that, what's up, what's up? You know, I'm really good at that stuff. But my aesthetic has been very, and then I've just done, I just did three years of work with John Doyle Who has been sort of like my latest mentor, and people think about the actress playing instruments, which I did with two of the, I've done three things with them, and two of them we did instruments. But it's really not, that's not what John's influence on me was. John's influence on me was more about like minimal setting, minimal lighting cues, not worrying about the quote unquote reality of, of like the stage pictures, you know, stepping in and out of time, stepping, I mean, real Peter Brooks stuff. So to go back to the question you asked a few minutes ago, four years ago I was in Macbeth at Lincoln Center, and I was definitely having—I was at another creative juncture in my life where I was just feeling older and kind of feeling like I wasn't using my full creativity. And the dean, the then dean of the College of the Arts in Gainesville University of Florida School of the Theater and it's called the School of Theater and Dance. She came to see Macbeth and she took me lunch, and I think, yeah, you know, I think she was going to sort of hit me up for money. <laughs> and I was. Sort of complaining about, you know, um each other week. And she called me a month later. She said, We have this money and we have this new position called a professor of practice where we bring somebody in to teach, but somebody who will keep an active foot in the profession. So I came down three years ago and started that. And it's been fantastic. It's been a huge learning experience. The kids are amazing. Because I, I admit I came down here with a little bit of snobbery, like, you know, well, I these kids at Juilliard and NYU. And, but, you know, there's talent everywhere. There are kids all around the world, and they get up and they you're just like, holy cow, like, how did you learn how to do that? And they're like, oh, I watched Audrey McDonald on YouTube and I her. And you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> I think about that line from The King and I a lot, you know, about it's a very ancient saying, but a true and honest thought that if you become a teacher by your pupils, you'll be taught. It's been incredible. And do you know Andrew Kale is? Uh, I don't think I do. Andrew was in the Anything Goes that Sutton Foster did, and he was in... Aladdin, the original company, and he was in a few things. And he joined the faculty uh, a year and a half ago. And he is the dance guy. And he's fantastic. And so, like, the faculty is really strong. The, a lot of the faculty still maintain strong professional ties. But I also want to say that, like, the first couple years I was teaching, it was so all-consuming that I really, I did, I did projects on this in the summer, but I was just trying to figure out, like, how to teach and how to deal with all the the academic stuff. This junk for right now, because I'm on summer vacation now, this is the first time when I'm like, I need to perform. So I'm doing a movie in September in California called North Star, and it's by a writer director named PJ Palmer. It's Kevin Bacon, Laura Ennis from ER. Corey Reynolds, who was the original seaweed lead of Harris Band Broadway, got a Tony nomination. And it's about this couple... Well, anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a love story and it's a story about family, and we're going to shoot that in September, I hope. And I'm so excited i can't tell you it's just such a beautiful beautiful project and they have amazing people involved on in it. other stuff has come up because of this insane pandemic like i don't want to say too much but like other other job options have come up because of zoom and suddenly i'm reconnecting with people in in la and they're like well where are you and they're like well, would you consider coming to la for a week and doing this and i'm like absolutely and and I, I wasn't ready to do that before, but now I feel... I've learned so much from, especially the on-camera stuff. Like, teaching on camera, you just learn so much watching other people do it. So now getting to be back on camera myself, I just, I'm like, you don't have to do so much, Malcolm. Like, you know, the stuff I say to the kids, I catch myself, and I'm like, you don't have to do so much. Most of the time, that's what I think now. I think you just got to, like, be really simple, and you don't have to, like, tell the audience anything. Just exist. And that goes back to something I said a half an hour ago about, like, getting
0: comfortable with
1: skin. I think... There's a reason why it took me so long to do film and TV is because before I couldn't just be observed. I had to sort of put on a show to keep everybody happy. Right. Now I'm like, okay, yeah, sure, put the thing up in my nostrils. I'm just going to be. I'm just going to be watched, be observed, which has been a long time coming for me because I didn't... It's not that I want to be observed or want to be watched, but I I think I'm finally, finally kind of settling into myself. I hope. It's only taking 56 years.
0: Well, I think you held your own opposite Jessica Lange in the Great Gardens film. You were fantastic and you recorded two songs with her how was that experience
1: <laughs> it was amazing i mean it was amazing because she's such an unbelievable artist she's an absolutely glorious and she's the most beautiful person too as well as just physically stunning she was so good to me she was really really good to me and by that i mean that she just they told me later that when they when they first decided to do the project, that they were giving pressure from HBO to get a name in that part. And it's one of the few times in my life where when they called about the audition, I said, they should give me that part because how many guys play the piano? And But HBO was thinking they would just hire somebody and fake it. So when I went in for my first audition, they didn't ask for it, but I had my husband filmed me doing a Rodgers and Hart number at the piano. And I just put it on a thumb drive. And at the end of the first audition for the casting director, I said, by the way, I said, I really play here. And the next day, the manager called me, she's like, the director's like hire him on the spot, but HBO wanted to see more from me. And, the, and at the at the call back, they said they wanted to see more of my relationship with Jessica, which was ridiculous because Jessica was not at the audition, so I had to have a relationship with the casting director that, anyway, this is so all probably useless information. <laughs> but I showed up. I showed up in Toronto with Drew and Jessica and Michael, who's the director who I loved, and Michael Susie. She just... She, I was like, gold, like, that was it. She was, she was never like, you know, who are you? Like, why do you have this part? Who, you know, what have you done? She was just like, hi, she's just completely treated me as her, as her peer. The quality of her work is so high. The level of her ability is so brilliant. You have to step up to her level. Talk about being present so, so utterly in the moment. And we filmed the movie backwards because it covers, you know, goes from when they're young to when they're falling apart. And we started with the falling apart stuff. So, there was a little sort of method method stuff in that, like, she's kind of just kept her space for me. But there was a day when we went back to the, the young days and everything was beautiful. And she came and she kissed me and she, she asked about Dominic. I mean, I was in love with her. The premiere was at the Ziegfeld in New York. And I went and it was packed and I have to say, as hard as I am on myself, the first time I saw that movie, I was, I was so proud. I was like, wow, they did, so- Michael did such an amazing job. And so the movie ended and I said to my friends, I said, let's just sit until the, the auditorium's empty. So we sat there for a good 20 minutes because there were so many people in there. And we were talking about the movie and then there was a moment I was like, oh, the theater's empty. Let's go. And we stood up and Jessica and Sam, who's now passed and two of her daughters were walking up the aisle because they'd done the same thing. And she, and I turned and looked at her and she's, got this evening gown on and it's hanging off her shoulders and she is the most beautiful woman you've ever seen in your life. And she just walks up, sashing her hips, and she walks up to me, she grabs my face, she kisses me right in the mouth, and she's like, Honey, it was so good, did did you to the movie screen? I was like, yes! And I told my brother, and he goes, How come you get all the luck, man? And I was like, what can I tell you they feel safe with me?
0: You You, you mentioned Dominic. How have you maintained such a successful relationship when you're out of town a lot, now you're in Florida, he's in New York, I mean, not currently because of the pandemic, but you've been able to, like go through all these phases of your career and still maintain a successful relationship. What are your secrets? (laughs) Well, first of all,
1: I lucked out. I just met the right person. In Twelfth Night, she says, Patience on a monument. Dominic is just like this very accepting, patient, loving soul. We've had some bumpy times, but we're a really good team. We're best friends. His parents are immigrants and my parents are immigrants and his parents are still together after some amount of time and my parents are together 69 years. And my mother always said to me, you have to be with somebody who's your friend. They have to be your best friend and Dominic is definitely my best friend, and, and then we saw another article, another interview where somebody said, You may not always like each other, but you always have to love each other. I don't know, you know, a lot of it has been me growing up because I think a year into our relationship, Dominic was ready to, to commit, and I, of course, was always like, Well, I'm not so sure, I'm not so sure. A lot of it's because I've done so much work on myself. I hate saying that sounds so cliche, but but I have, you know, I've just done a lot of work on myself. and. If somebody wanted relationship advice, I would say tell each other everything. Mm. We just talk about everything. And there are times I've told friends, I'm like, oh, I told Dominic Hello. And they're like, I can't believe you told him that. And I'm like, well, if I can't tell him that, what the fuck am I going to tell? Or my French, you know? Exactly. And we do. We just, we just talk about everything. And he's very comfortable in his skin. Much more so than I was when we met 20 years ago. He was, he was always pretty okay in his skin. And, and he just, he, this sounds so saccharine to say this, but he really just accepts me. I mean, it doesn't mean he accepts some of my behavior at times. There are times, you know, I've been out of line. He doesn't care if I put on five pounds. He doesn't judge like how I look. I don't feel any really pressure that way. He just loves me. And you know, all of his predecessors, it was not that way. It was always picking people like from my family, which is, I love my family, but they're very British family, very sort of like Martini on one hand, saying caustic one-liners up the side of your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> So before I met Dominic, I sort of said to the universe, I said, if I'm ever going to be with anybody again, they have to be all all accepting and enter Dominic. And that was really where the real work started. I couldn't deal with somebody loving me so unconditionally. It was so it was like having a blinding light shone on me. That was really hard. I'd always gone for people who were sort of like me. They were sort of like not really convinced. And, and then to just have somebody come into my life and was like, you're great. I was like, what's the matter with you? I'm not great. Like, stop it. And I used to say over the first five years, I'd say like, can you turn it down a little bit over there and be like, just bring it down, bring it down. Like, this is Miss Hannigan and Annie. When she comes and she goes, Do oh, I hear happiness here? Yes, exactly. <laughs>
0: well, speaking of doing work on yourself, you're like a handsome, stunning leading man on television. So now you're getting older and your body's changing. And, you know, yeah. some people are like, Oh, you're that guy from that show. I mean, how have you dealt with getting older in show business?
1: <laughs> I haven't. No, I can tell you one story. Roger Reese was still with us, and he was running Williamstown. They called me, and they said, it was Tara Rubin's office, and they called me and they said, Roger wants Malcolm to come to Anything Goes at Williamstown. And I talked to my manager, and I said, oh, it's such a boring part. She goes, What? Well, I said, Billy Crocker, it's such a boring part. She goes, no, 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 they want you to play Lord of Evil Land And I was like, oh, oh, oh. And that was literally like the moment I was like, juvenile, no more. Thank God. Thank God. You know what I mean? I'm lucky because even as a younger actor, I sort of straddled the leading man character man thing. I was kind of in the middle of them anyway. But now I just don't have to worry about that shit There's such better parts for the character people, you know? Now, that said, you know, when I was filming myself the other night for this Obie Award thing, I was watching the playback and I turned to the side and I'm like, what is that turkey gullet hanging from my chin? I'm just like, oh my God, what happened? I just don't watch myself. I just try not to watch myself. Penny Fuller, who played my mother in New Brain, who's a brilliant actress and one of the most beautiful women I've ever known, She her first big splash was she played Eve Harrington in applause with Lauren McCall in 1970. Oh, wow. And then and apparently they and they filmed it in London and it had not been available but because of YouTube it turned up so you can actually watch Lauren Bacall and Lee Reams and Penny and all these great people, Bonnie Franklin, I think, doing applause uh, on YouTube. And she was, you know, in her early 20s. And I, I saw her and I said, Penny, I, said, I saw applause. And she goes, well, wasn't I beautiful? And I said, well, you're still beautiful. And she goes, thanks, I mean. she goes, she said, the trick is, she said, five years from now, you'll see a picture of yourself today and you'll think, God, I look good. So she said, you just got to be in the moment. You just got to stay there, so.
0: Well, I don't know if you can answer this question in one complete sentence, but I'll see how you do. Why are you obsessed with Barbara Streisand?
1: I... Had a best friend as a teenager named Mitchell Bronstein, and Mitchell was born in Flatbush. So he was Jewish, she was from the same neighborhood, but he's from New York, and he was obsessed with her, and I used to hate the sound of her voice. And it was mostly because Mitchell was always playing her. And then in 1996, this is actually a really X-rated story, so I can't, I can't go into the X-rated part, but like I was in London, Carolina City was on the air. I didn't realize it was international, so i prancing around London and thought I was anonymous until it became clear to me that I was not anonymous and people knew who I was. And I met this guy. I was single, so it was okay. But I met this wonderful guy named Brahim. I got sick. I got the flu. And he took care of me for two days. I've never, I can't believe I'm telling you the story. It was the kind of story I've only told friends. He took care of me for two days. He lived in Elephant Castle, which is South London. And I was really sick. Like, I, I would, like, brain fever, like, you know, where you wake up and you're covered in sweat and you're just like, gasping and, and he would wake me up and move me to the couch because the bed was soaked and he'd move me back and forth and he was a relative stranger I mean he, we'd gone on a date and then I just got sick one morning I woke up and my fever had broken and I felt like I'd lost five pounds and he's like you're feeling much better and I got up and he took me into his kitchen and it was pink I remember he had a pink tiled kitchen and he's like do you want some tea and I was like oh I'd love some tea and then he's like do you want some toast and I was like yes I'd love some toast and for some reason I was sort of elated I was, I was sort of like, what life is so mysterious. And I, he was so, so good to me, this guy. And, and there was <laughs> music playing. And I, and I was like, I was like, weeping. I was like, this girl has the most enchanting voice I've ever heard in my life. I was like, it's like an angel. And I was like, is this some young English girl? And he goes, no, this is Barbara Streisand. And I was like, I hate Barbara Streisand. And he goes, no, this is Barbara Streisand like 1965. So, two days later, I flew to New York for 48 hours, and then I flew back to Los Angeles to resume Carolina in the city. In the two days that I was in New York, I bought the first, second, third, fifth, sixth, seventh albums of Barbara Streisand. And not only was I going back to Carolina the city, but I was going back to do a reprise, which was LA's version of Encores, which was being conducted by Peter Matz, who was the orchestrator on all of the early Streisand albums. And so literally within two weeks I was like an addict. I was like out of control. I was like I was like listening to her twenty four hours a day. And Peter's assistant said, Don't talk to Peter about Barbara because they had a really bad falling out. So for three days it sort of kept it together and then on the fourth day we were at the piano world something and I was like, Peter, you know, I was in London a couple weeks ago and I heard those first three Strikesman albums for the first time and they are really good and Peter was a gentleman. He said, I'm very proud of the work we did together. Let's let's get back to work and he basically like was like not gonna tell me. Years later I got to be really close to Wally Harper, who was Barbara Cook's brilliant musical director. They were close And Wally was the opposite of Peter and so years later we went out as a group and Wally slapped Peter on the arm and he goes, Tell the kids I'm sorry about her So like give me the ski on her But you he said to say it in one sentence. I just think it's the most beautiful sound. It's just the most beautiful voice. And as much as I love her voice and the stuff she's done in the meanwhile, for me it really is about the stuff in the 60s because of Peter Maz and because of that era. Like for me that's when it was really kicking. The way she fit into the 60s and the arrangements that he did with her and that other people did with her. Yes, I love her voice, and I, I, she makes me laugh, and I think she's beautiful. But part of it, too, is those first seven or eight years when she was making, like, doing Hair Laurel and stuff like that. That's really where she lives for me.
0: Oh, I need to check out her earlier stuff. I didn't start. Oh, from, my God. Until, like, I feel like the 80s when my mom started listening to. Oh, it. no, 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 no. Brad, watched the
1: first Barbara Streisand Television special. It's called My Name is Barbara. Do you know Bobby Bianca? Yes. Bobby was also in *Cast*. I knew him in the, in, during that time I was with Joey. We used to hang out with him, and the first time I met Bobby, he said, you look like a barber fan, and it was before the whole thing had happened. So years later, I saw Bobby, and I was like, you were right. And he's like, I knew it. And he said, I, I could tell you were going to be a barber fan. So I have this theory about gay men and their details, which is they tend to reflect our own personalities. I have a friend in L.A., and he loves Carol Burnett, and he's kind of like Carol Burnett. So there's a part of me that I'm not saying talent-wise, but, like, I can be kind of blunt like her, and I... Hyper perfectionistic, like her, and I don't know, I, I, her moxie, you know. I think, I think, I, I used to have her mox.
0: Yes. Of your whole career, if you had to pick one or maybe two highlights, or just your personal life, this was a magical moment.
1: One of them was, we, we finished our fourth season of Carolina in the City, and there was a lot of changes going on at the networks. And right before we shot the last episode of the season, they said, we don't know if we're going to come back next year, so we have to make an episode that's going to function either as a cliffhanger. So we did this very sort of unfulfilling final episode because it had to be able to carry over into another season or end. And so it sort of accomplished neither. So we had a wrap party, and somehow I got this thing into my head, and I taught, there were five series regulars and then we had a director named Ted Lang, who'd been a Broadway guy before he started directing television. And then we had this executive person named Fe- Feo Chima, who was just the most, ele- is the most elegant and gracious lady. And so I got this crazy idea and I rewrote So Long Farewell from the sound of music.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And the beginning was like, there's a strange sort of sound from the place known as NBC. And dun da they won't tell us so firmly, they compel us to say, F you to you. So long, farewell, I'll be the Zane. I'll never fly. And Jibby's playing again. Jibby borrowed." Set up a private plane So then everybody Wrote their own verse And it was The whole The crew And the networks And it was like A room full of people That I five years with Who I loved as much as any people in my life. Those people are the most, the crews, same in New York, they're just the greatest people. The, the hardest working, most unsung heroes. So we got up to do it and that five minute song took like 15 minutes to get through because every time somebody would sing their solo, the place would go insane. And then Faye Oshima, she, she's very elegant and reserved and I don't know how I got her to do it, but everybody else wrote Rewrote their verse, but she was Gretel, and all she had to do was go, The sun has gone too bad, and so much high because she was so hard working. And so they went down the aisle one, two, three, four, five, six, and it got to Faye, and she stepped forward to start singing. And then I was playing the piano, I had to hold for like, I was just vamping for like two minutes because the people were screaming so hard, and then she burst into tears. And so she's standing there weeping, and she goes, The sun has gone too bad, at so must time So long, farewell, up, to and goodbye, 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 goodbye. And you know how the movie then they guess all about
2: goodbye
1: all those crew people all those people who are not musical theater people they all just went goodbye and the place erupted and i went to the door i knew i had to leave i didn't want to talk to anybody once the number was over and i ran to the door and i just turned around and i looked at the room and i saw all these people were so happy and so full of love and i left that moment was like a snapshot i'm not saying it was because of me but i just like thought like you know, I did. I sort of instigated this thing that that was one of the greatest moments of my life. I'll just never forget that. There
0: are other stories I can think of, but that's one of the most meaningful moments. I absolutely love it. Thank you so much for this interview, Malcolm. I'm so thrilled. I usually end the, each episode with a song from... You don't have to sing it, of course. But if you could pick a song that's either important to you right now or in your career that I would have playing off during the final credits, what song comes to mind?
1: Oh, I've got the weirdest... It's going to be weird. It's not a It's It's a strange song. That's okay. The theme song from The Great American Hero. Believe it or not, I'm walking oh, yes. air. I never thought it would seem so free. Do you know that song? Yes, I do. Theme song from The Great American Hero. I told Dominic, I said, in 30 years, I'd
0: to play that at my funeral. Wow, no, that's a great song. Well, thank you so much. This was so awesome. I'd, like, give Dominic Brad. a hug and a kiss and enjoy Gainesville. I will.
1: I miss New York.
0: It'll still be here. I mean, a le- little less populated, sadly, but it will still be here. Brad, thank you for taking this time. My pleasure.
2: Look at what's happened to me. I can believe it myself. Suddenly, I'm about.